The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. It's surprising to see how few people are in the room because we're generating so much energy. <laughs> it feels like a very strong um, rahatsu here. And um, I can only assume that the energy that's streaming in over the love stream is uh, adding to that. So I wanted to start with a thought experiment. This is one that I came across a year or so ago in the book Reflections on Silver River by Ken McLeod. And it was effective for me in terms of um, helping me have a uh, direct and embodied sense of tenderizing a bit, releasing the grasp, opening up. So um, it takes about a minute. So imagine that you're going to die in one minute. Wherever you are as you're hearing this, this is it. Just one more minute, and then you'll die. So you don't have any time to call anyone. There's no time to settle your affairs, no time to resolve any of the problems in your life. However you are right now, this is it. There's just one minute, and then your life is over. Okay. In his, um, in his book, uh, Ken McLeod says, invites us to reflect on, okay, so how did you spend that last minute of your life? And surmises that perhaps we might have grown quiet and just taken in everything that we could. Perhaps we might feel a little bit of awe at the prospect wondering, perhaps, what the end of life is like. For me, the quality that that um, touched was one of basic aliveness. Just being with what is. Just being with myself as I am right now, not planning, not creating, not judging or working hard, not improving, not figuring out, not resolving, not doing anything, non-doing. This non-doing 
is an extremely important aspect of our zazen practice. It seems to be the way to deepen into our experience, our experience of mind. I remember at uh, a recent in-person introductory weekend, I guess that would be October or November, anyway, um, I was speaking with uh, one of the participants at supper and um, kind of asking her why she came and um, if she felt like she got out of the weekend um, anything useful to her. And she shared a little bit about having an experience of um, profound contact with the sacred nature of life, kind of a spontaneous um, grace, you might call it. And that she came because she felt like she could uh, benefit from having a practice that would help her um, open to that on a more of an ongoing way. And then she said, but you know, I was really kind of turned off by all of this talk about mind, because that just sounds so like heady and intellectual. And I thought, oh, having been one of the people who used the word mind like 50 times, I'm sure, during that day, I was like, no, 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 no. That's not what that means. It's not that kind of mind. It's well, and I found myself sort of tangled up a little bit in words. And the thing that I wanted to communicate is like, no, no, exactly that sacred contact that you felt, that's mind. And so throw that word away if it's not working for you. And please, like, use, use what will. Um, elicit that. It's our complete experience of reality of life when we're completely intimate that that word is trying to point to and um, as I have said before um, the the word that's translated as mind in um, Chinese has both meanings of heart and mind. So it's not heady and intellectual. It's like your you-ness, the whole thing, the whole thing. And the teachings are that mind is empty. So here again, we're in the danger zone of language because that can sound like blank and void. That's another word that's used for empty. And... Um, that can really set us off on some uh, particular paths. It set me off and um, can still trip me up. Empty, of course, in this case means empty of intrinsic, separate selfhood identity. Not empty of manifestation or being 
we're here. We're here. Codependently originating. Language. That's why it's so good that we're in a tradition that's beyond words and letters. So there's the quieting of the mind, this non-doing. The um, Zen, one of the things that, and one of the things I want to look at a little bit is I've gotten pretty um, kind of engrossed in my own uh, exploration of the early, early days of, of Zen. I've been interested in this for a while because I guess I feel like I'm in this tradition and... Um, finding my way in it and wanting to understand, like, you know, I'm, I guess I'm also aware that, like, I'm at the, um, uh, I'm receiving according to my own um, conditioning and biases and whatnot, and also according to, like, the, the, the teachings that have been handed down. And so, I keep wanting to know, like, okay, well, how did this start? What is it? What are we doing? What is this practice? Where did it come from? How does it work? And um, so I'm not a scholar, and I've just been reading a few things here and there, but kind of um, engrossed in it a bit. And, um, you know, what we know today as, as Zen um, was distinguished, did kind of come into being in, in um, China around the practice of meditation. And so dhyana, which is the Sanskrit word that is often translated as meditation, um, transliterated into Chinese with something like chana and then abbreviated and shortened to chan, the meditation school. And that you know, the records are scant from that time um, in terms of the early, early days of, of, of the formation of this tradition. Um, but it does seem quite clear that it was, it was meditation and this practice of meditation, which, you know, was, was, was being blended with the Taoist practices and culture present at the time is what formed and eventually became um, known as Chan and Zen. But anyway, all of this to say that I was listening to a teaching being given by um, a Tibetan teacher, a, a Western person, Eric Pema Kunsang, who has translated vast quantities of Tibetan texts and um, is, is now something of a teacher in his own right. And I was listening to a teaching that he was giving and he offhandedly talked about um, dhyana, translated dhyana as non-doing. So I was very interested in that as an alternative translation to just meditation. Non-doing. Could it be that this non-doing understood in its deepest manifestation is one of the things that characterized that formation of, of Zen. When we let the mind settle, we have the experience, we have the capacity to be able to um, 
as the, as the activity of the mind diminishes to be able to apprehend or come into closer contact with this empty, radiant, ineffable mind, heart. But the point is not that like the empty quality of mind is supreme or better or like the whole point. It's like super helpful to us if we want to be free to see that that quality is intrinsic and it infuses everything and is our nature. But it's not like that's the whole picture because of course we have experiences all the time that arise and that are happening to us. And so mind also has this very um, generative, creative quality. In the Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions, they speak about mind being empty but luminous. So a second thought experiment, just for a moment. If you can just please bring to mind someone, or a, uh, it could be a, a non-human someone, who you love unconditionally. Bring them to mind, and then imagine encountering them, and look into their eyes and see them as they regard you with that delight, they love you unconditionally too. So I'm having a little trouble with this at this moment. Maybe it's because I'm nervous in giving this talk. Earlier, I was able to very much feel for myself and my own body uh, a sense of relaxation and brightening. So I don't know. Maybe if you're not the one giving the talk, that's still available to you. I hope so. Because um, this is your mind. You can call something into it and then experience, have an experience based on that. Conversely, if I asked you to think about something that you're anxious about, right? Something that needs to get done, some, I don't know, deadline, some problem. Like, let's take a minute and really think about that. You'd have a whole different experience. We take this for granted. (laughs) This is just what's ruling our life and shaping our days. But like, wow. So now we're talking about training our mind. We're talking about being intentional with how we use that creative capacity. So powerful. So powerful. We see all around us all the time the ramifications of uh, unenlightened manifestation of intention or lack of intention. That's the whole of the burning world. But then as practitioners, we have access and the possibility 
of cultivating that capacity and of really using it. We do this together. I'm so struck. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, since we've like quarantine shut down for for, uh, just before the holidays, we've like celebrated Christmas (laughs) and like had a meal and presents and like um, watched a movie and caroled to our, our, our beloved sister in quarantine in the Jizo house. We've had like all of these experiences. And like now we're in the middle of like a deep, real Rahatsu session and not a thing has come in from the outside. Same people, same room, same ground, same, same. Completely different experience, different intention. Everyone's showing up with different energy. It's powerful. There's this um, thing that I came across that is a, um, a teaching on the, on the six realms, and it sort of talks about the, um, the, the qualities of the different realms, and it says that the human realm is characterized by excessive activity and constant frustration. <laughs> I was like, that's so brilliant. Excessive activity and constant frustration. So into this picture we bring non-doing. So looking at early Zen teachings, of course, is going to run into Bodhidharma. And, you know, the scholars can't dismiss him and can't 100% corroborate that such a person existed. Um, There seems to be this phenomena with the early texts of this period that like um, they, they sort of build off of each other. And so the fact that Bodhidharma appears in successive places, they're all similar texts. There was a lot of energy that was put into um, developing a lineage, a sense of lineage for the mind-to-mind transmission. And so this took some time to sort out and they found like these different versions, different iterations of like, what was this lineage? And they had to like fill some stuff in and like work out some kinks and like Bodhidharma appears in all of them. But they're like, that doesn't actually mean that he was 100% a real person. Um, And I thought about how like nowadays you can like Google something and you'll like find the same thing in a bunch of places. And then you're like, wait a second, <laughs> maybe everyone's just Googled that and then put that on their website, you know? So it's kind of the um, ancient version of that, I think. Um, so uh, Bodhidharma. He, there's, there, are, there are traditionally a few teachings attributed to him and then like, um, it seems that uh, there's only one that people are, have good consensus, like, no, this, is, this one was really him. The other ones people said, like, oh, Bodhidharma wrote that in order to elevate the teaching and give it a certain notoriety within, within the tradition. But the one 
um, which is the uh, treatise on two entrances and four practices, includes this introduction by, um, I think it's supposedly a successor of Wika's. So Bodhidharma's student's student wrote an introduction to this um, treatise. And in it, he refers to Bodhidharma's practice of wall contemplation or wall gazing. I'm laughing to myself because I'm about to like totally geek out. I've got so into this little like, <laughs> like thing on wall contemplation because I thought like, oh, like this is it. This is the earliest reference to like what Zen meditation is, you know, like what are they going to say about it? And um, so I, I've, I've been, I've done, you know, I have a lot of, a lot more, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot more to learn about it, but but I wanted to, to uh, understand. And so, because in the, in the teachings that Bodhidharma gives, he gives, you know, he talks about um, practices and so on and so forth. And, but, but like, what do you actually do? Like, what do you actually do in Zen meditation is like, <laughs> so, this wall contemplation, okay. Basically, in a nutshell, because there's so little that's said about early Zen meditation and this phrase appears, and it appears again in successive places. It appears in this introduction to Bodhidharma's apparent teaching, and then it appears in these other teachings that talk about Bodhidharma. So then whenever someone would like have a biography of Bodhidharma in one of these compendiums of like the lineage, they would talk about like the, you know, the Brahmin's practice of wall contemplation. So it like became this phrase that he was like very associated with. And we have heard, I have heard, um, and I think many of you have too, that Bodhidharma sat in a cave facing a wall for nine years. And this is an interpretation, apparently, again, linguistically, in the original Chinese, it's not clear what's the relationship between the contemplation and the wall. And people, um, several hundred years later, uh, there was a, a clear decision that like, okay, Bodhidharma was sat facing a wall. This is wall contemplation. You sit facing the wall. And, um, but that's like, there have been scholars that have been like, well, I don't know if that's actually what it means. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> um, so, you know, there's a few different interpretations that I have come across. Most of this is actually from this book called The Northern School and the Formation of Early Chan Doctrine by John McRae which is what we have in the library, and I think there's probably been much more recent scholarship. I did do a little bit of online research, and I have um, something a little more recent to share, too. But anyway, you know, there's, there's the sort of things that you would think of. So facing a wall, um, uh, the wall being like a steadfast, sort of stable, a metaphor for sort of steadfast stability, like that kind of concentrated mind. 
there's um, talk about translation. There's a part in, in McRae's translation of this introduction to Bodhidharma's teaching where he talks about the, the student uses the word frozen. He's frozen in wall contemplation, which I basically have a heart attack about because anytime people talk about Zazen as being in a freeze, I'm like, no, don't freeze. Don't you want to come to life? In another translation, it's translated as in this coagulated state of wall contemplation, which I'm like, okay, I guess there's a language barrier happening here. Um, but then there's this one, this one note in the, um, there's a, a Japanese professor whose name appears frequently. He obviously was, um, slash is, I really don't know, uh, quite a scholar of renown, um, when it comes to early Chan and Zen studies. And um, Yanagida is his name. And he has this other interpretation. And so the, the Chinese, and apologies, my pronunciation will not be authentic, Bai Quan is wall, the wall contemplates. Um, in essence, Bai Quan means the wall contemplates, not one contemplates a wall. Okay, so you hear the shift? It's not that you're sitting in front of a wall contemplating the wall. The wall contemplates. One becomes a wall and contemplates as such. What does one contemplate? One contemplates shunyata, emptiness. One gazes intently at a vibrantly alive shunyata. And he goes on to say that these, um, so there was a tradition of meditating in caves, so cool. And these are not just like, you know, like a cave that a bear hibernated in. They were like caves that were actually created, like carved out from the rock and then like carved with statues and sutras. I don't know, maybe some people have been to these caves. They exist. You can go see them, I guess. I saw some pictures. It's amazing. I didn't realize that. I thought Bodhidharma was just like in a cave. But like um, they, they have like the eyes of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas carved into the floors and ceilings. So Yanagita is saying like you have to imagine like that's where Bodhidharma is doing Zazen. That's where he's doing his Baikwan. And so the wall contemplates is um, I think of like Dogen talking about like the teachings of the inanimate. You know, I was sitting during um, Oriyoki and thinking like, well, could the Zendo contemplate? Like if I were to sit Zazen in that way, freed of this body, released, what kind of wall contemplation would that be? And then the same professor, Yanagita, says, at the same time, wall contemplation includes the idea of turning back the brilliance in counter-illumination. And then he gives some Japanese and Chinese um, language there, which... Uh, 
It's not clear to me how that relates to the phrase by Quan, but he, so he goes on, he, he gives that as an example, the wonderfully bright radiance of the setting sun or the inconceivable function of the mirror, which illuminates each and everything in existence. So that's a very different take. And interestingly, just to support that interpretation, they found, you know, these ancient, along the Silk Road in Dunhuang, they found these um, uh, translations, Tibetan translations of Chinese texts. So they have found Bodhidharma's treatise translated into Tibetan, and there's more than one copy. And in that, hold on to your seats, everybody. In that, the phrase wall contemplating or wall examining has been substituted. They didn't use it. The translation is totally faithful, apparently, except when it gets to that phrase. And then, um, hang on, I got to find it. Here it is. Instead of um, abides in wall examining, the phrase is abides in brightness. This is a curious and consistent divergence, writes the author. This is um, in a book called The Bodhidharma Anthology by Jeffrey Broughton. Why not a literal rendering, since the Tibetan translations of Chinese Chan materials are, as a rule, quite literal? I don't know. Isn't that so interesting? Like, someone made the choice. Maybe they were like, people keep getting tripped up around that wall-contemplating phrase. What else could we say? How could we put it? Why don't you try, like, um, abides in brightness? Okay. Okay. That's pretty good. That light, that brightness, that pervades the Zen teachings. It pervades Dogen. He talks about the light, the, the light radiating from the walls, tiles, pebbles, it's in all the koans, not all of them, but it's throughout. It's in Hongzhou, radiant, not frozen, shimmering, bright, alive. We speak about samsara sometimes as exhausting. I've heard Shugen use that phrase. It's exhausting. And that can, again, sound a bit benign. So you have to think to yourself of a time where you have felt exhausted. Not like good exhausted after like a hard day of like, you know, nice physical labor and like you're going to settle down to a meal. Just like run down, shitty, exhausted, like dried out. That like, ache behind the eyeballs, exhausted. Samsara is exhausting. 
And Tulku Urjan Rinpoche writes in Rainbow Painting, the antidote for exhaustion is, from the very beginning, to relax from deep within, to totally let be. Training in the awakened state of mind is not something you must keep up in a deliberate way. Rather, recognizing unfabricated naturalness is totally effortless. The best relaxation brings the best meditation. If you are relaxed from deep within, how can that be tiring? What is difficult is to be continually distracted. How do we let our mind quiet in that way? How do we not do? Well, when I um, invited you to think of a person who you love unconditionally and bring them to mind, there's a quality of um, easefulness that we can contact when we feel held by love. I think, in a way, that's why love feels so good. And so part of how we might understand deepening into our practice is to appreciate that we are holding ourselves in that kind of unconditional love. So non-doing means whatever arises in your mind, you don't have to do anything about it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to chase it away. You don't have to pursue it or run after it or try and bend it to make it something different. You can just not do. You can just let be. When we talk about faith and practice, I feel like sometimes the strongest faith is this faith in non-doing. That we can actually just let be. And it's okay to, um, on the path to non-doing, to use your mind in a creative way. So it's okay to, like Roshi was saying this morning, you know, if you're feeling tired, take up a practice that is based in compassion, like the four immeasurables, you know, bring energy into your practice. You You can use the creative generative capacity of your mind to create a space of holding yourself in love. So like whatever arises to meet that, to just give yourself that in a feelingful, embodied way. I offer this to you because I've used it and it's worked for me. In the Platform Sutra, the um, first kind of... uh, Zen text, we're studying it right now, the monastics are. Um, in it, Weineng is, is, is um, preaching to a, a group of, of practitioners, and he says, this is from Red Pine's translation, he says, if we didn't think, the na- then our nature would be utterly empty. When we think, we transform ourselves. If we think evil thoughts, we turn into denizens of hell. If we think good thoughts, we turn into denizens of heaven. Our nature is constantly transforming itself, but deluded people are unaware of this. 
just a few paragraphs down in that text, Weineng introduces the Bodhisattva vows, which all those years ago are pretty much exactly what we chant. So we're doing that all the time. A lot of liturgy is doing exactly that. So saturating ourselves with our own self-acceptance. Whatever arises unconditionally allowing that. Not getting caught in the content or the stories, but just observing the energy and the experience beneath it. And to know that at the deepest level, that non-doing is a path to that unconditional love. Because somehow it's all arising out of that. Belonging. Our belonging. Our belonging to ourself. Unquestionably. That's unshakable. It's not frozen. It's open all the way. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.